The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Yeah, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17. As you're turning there, let me give you a little historical background about what's going to happen this week and next week because it's significant to me personally. Um, it was a year and a half ago that the Lord began to work in my heart and in the heart of the leadership here at Mission Road Bible Church that um, He would open a door for me to come and serve you as, as pastor. And once that became finalized in, uh, I think it was March of a year and a half ago, I instantly began thinking and people began incessantly asking me, what are you going to preach first? That's a, you feel like Charles Spurgeon who came to the choice of text to preach on and he said, when I, when I chose text to preach on, every verse in the Bible raised its hand and said, pick me, pick me. And I feel that felt that way. And I was talking to my friends and talking to my my pastor, John MacArthur, and he gave me some invaluable advice. He says, preach whatever is most on your heart. Don't try to set the course, set the agenda, redefine, most, correct. He says, just preach what's on your heart. And for the previous few years, I had been stuck, as it were, in a good way, in John 13 through 17. I was overwhelmed by the fact that John, who said if everything that were written about Jesus could have been written, those books would fill the whole world in the last chapter of this wonderful gospel. I was struck by the fact that yet he only wrote 21 chapters, and even overwhelmed by the fact that out of 21 chapters, he spent five of those chapters devoted to this final discourse, this upper room discourse, none of which this data is recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Just overwhelmed with his care for wanting to equip the disciples and subsequently you and me to be ready to live life with an invisible Savior, to be ready to live life with the presence of Christ and the mandates of Christ and the commands of Christ without his physical presence which the disciples had enjoyed for some three years up to this moment. Well, we're going to finish this upper room discourse this week and next week. And I already feel like coming to the end of a school year where you, you're excited about what's coming next, but you also are going to miss the friends that you've made. I want to keep going on to the end of John and start over in chapter 1, but we're going we're to finish up this section next week and then a few weeks later begin the book of Romans on Sunday morning. But we come to this final time where Jesus is looking at his men He's about to say amen and go suffer. This is it. The look that must have been exchanged, the looks between the Savior and the men who he had poured into for three years right now must have been unlike any others they had shared before. This is it. This is his deathbed conversation. In this final section of admonition, In this final section of request, he turns in this next to last section to the Lord to ask for something special with regard to these men. Let's read what he says 
in verses 16 through 19. Jesus prays, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Every enterprise and every effort wants to have some identifying mark, some branding, some uniform or or signage, some trademark or flag or insignia that represents who they are and what they do and what they sell and what they believe. Products are known for their branding. A green circle with a long-haired girl usually means Starbucks or it means an alien invasion from a Rapunzel Martian. A red can with a white wavy line almost always means Coke. Athletic teams are known for color schemes, nicknames, mascots, fight songs. Orange and white always, always, always means the Tennessee Volunteers. A policeman is easily identified by the badge and the uniform he wears. A Marine is easily known by dress blues. Having a a sign, a little sticker on your shirt that says, Hello, my name is usually indicates you're a visitor somewhere. Those are easiest. Those are obvious examples. But what would you say is the identifiable brand? What's the trademark? What's the insignia? What's the uniform? What's the branding of a Christian? How do you know? What's the, the, the identifying marker of one who knows Christ? What unmistakably points to the fact that a person belongs to Jesus? What is the signature of someone on the gospel mission? Well, is it cross jewelry? We have necklaces and earrings and shirts and all sorts of cross paraphernalia. Is it having a fish sticker on the back of your car? Is it wearing t-shirts with verses screen printed on them? As we've studied Jesus' prayer here in John 17... This final prayer with his disciples before his suffering, this hour or so away from his arrest, which will be followed by physical torture and crucifixion, remarkably, he spends the bulk of his time caring for and instructing these men and subsequently you and me. Remarkably, he spends the majority of this prayer for the 11 friends in the upper room now made their way down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Judas having having left to betray him. We find this section of prayer for the disciples in verses 6 to 19. This is the final section that the Lord prays for these men. And as he finishes this section, he prays for their identification, their insignia, their branding, what they'll be known for, their signature. He doesn't give them all cross necklaces. He doesn't give them a a cross screen printed toga. He doesn't issue them a jersey with a number and their name on the back. He doesn't print business cards for them, nor does he give them name tags that are marked Apostle. Hello, my name is Apostle so and so. No, he prays that they will have the critical, 
the most identifying, the loudest, the most distinctive signature of being a Christian that he ever commanded and ever mandated. Say, what is that? He prays for their sanctification, their holiness, their moral standards, the way they live, the way they conduct their lives. He fundamentally says that you will, you should, you must live distinctively different from the world where you find residence. Now, just a footnote about the word sanctify. It's used over and over in this passage. It's it's hagias. It's holy. Make them holy. Make them different. Holiness and sanctification, which is a big word, really is broken down into two different dimensions, two subcategories. The first is to be morally blameless, to be holy, to be morally pure and unstained by the world. It also means separation from the world, to isolate something for the purpose of protection and special purpose. Sanctifying was not always a, a holy word in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you sanctified something, you could place it from one place to another. You had set it aside, set it apart from something to something else. Moral purity and separation. That's what he's asking for for these men. They be set aside, known for, identified by their moral purity, the way they acted in holiness before God, before others, the way they demonstrated a love for obedience, a love for what God had commanded them in the law, a love for what God had commanded them in His Word. He petitions the Father about their sanctification. Now again, I I cannot overemphasize this enough. If you were about to die and you were praying with your closest loved ones, what would occupy your thoughts? Well, this final request for them personally, Jesus asks for their holiness. He asks God to do something in them that makes them distinctive from the world, separate from the world, and attached to Him in holiness. Now, a quick look ahead. Next week, this is unbelievable. Next week, in this next passage, Jesus prays specifically for you and for me. He prays for those future believers who he had in mind, which includes and grasps you and me. We'll look at that next week. But for this time, let's look at the three sanctified marks of the gospel mission. Three sanctified marks of the gospel mission. He says, you're going to go out. How are they going to know your mind? How are they going to know you're a Christian? How will they know you belong to the gospel purpose? How will they know that your mission includes me and my favor and my purpose and my power? He gives them three identifying marks, sanctified marks, as he uses this word over and over in this passage. The first mark is in verse 16, an alien identity, an alien identity. Now, he's not talking about Mars or green things. This is not an X-Files review. He's saying you need to have an alien identity. He prays, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is virtually a repetition, by the way, of what Jesus said two verses earlier at the end of verse 14. The alien identification of the disciples is heavy on his mind and heart. He knows what's going to happen. 
He knows what's going to happen in the coming three days. He knows what's going to happen in a little more than a month. He'll spend with them after the resurrection. And then he's going to leave them on their own to propagate the gospel. And they will be considered not of this world. They will be tried and incarcerated and beaten and left for dead and put on trial for being other than this world. Most of those early Christians, by the way, were imprisoned and tried for being atheists. So how could that be? Because they didn't believe that the, the emperor, Nero, was the, the true and living God. They were tried as atheists. Jesus says, no, I want to tell you how to look like the God you serve. If you're going to be the representative of someone, you need to look in some measure like them, represent them in some identifiable way. And it makes perfect sense that Jesus attaches his moral excellence, his own being set apart, his sanctified nature of his person and his mission. He says, that's exactly how people are going to know you. That's what people should see about you. Now, let me say it from the very beginning. This is radical. This is not for the faint of heart. Jesus says, you need to remind the world, Christian, of me. Now, as wonderful as that sounds, if they attacked, crucified the Savior, what will they do to his followers? This is what Paul says in Colossians 1 where he says, we, we long to fill up that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church has said Christ's suffering isn't done, so we need to have a Mass every Sunday that re-crucifies the Savior. That's not what's being said here. In Colossians 1, he's saying, I fill up that which is left, left in Christ's suffering, his affliction, in this sense. They can't get to him, but they will get to me, and I'm happy to receive the blows for him because he took the cross for me. That's what he's saying. And this is where the fuse is lit for these disciples. He prays for them in front of them. This inner Trinitarian communication about them and their mission, about how they're supposed to be, act, represent themselves. Notice there's a plural here, they. It's a they that's in focus there. Being aliens on this world is not a solitary, lonely condition. It's a shared fellowship with a community of other believers. We are an alien nation. This is not our world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Even more, being an alien and not a part of this world is the result of our relationship and fellowship with him personally. He too is a stranger and an alien on this planet. This is the most bizarre thought. The second person of the Trinity, who himself was the person of the Godhead who created the world, Colossians 1 tells us, he created the world. He was not welcome on the planet he created. He was an alien on his own created planet. Stricken, forsaken, rebuked, ignored, ridiculed, and ultimately killed by people he made who were fashioned in their mother's womb by the creative miracle of his own power. The creator was not of this world. It's hard to say. The creator came and was not a part of his world. If he was not, how do you think we're going to fare out? How are we going to do? 
1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What is the world here? It's simply the disposition of the people to be against God and His Word. It's also a worldview that, that we're born inside of, that we, we see every day. It's the oxygen we breathe. We can surmise from 1 Peter 2.11 that the world is comprised of humanity's combined fleshly lust, which we participate in until we're believers, and then then Jesus has sanctified them, make them different than that, to put aside worldly lust, to live for the glory of God and not the pleasure of our flesh. Probably the, the core of what Jesus is after here is to tell these aliens, these people who are not of this world, that's them and us, not to treat this world like home. We, we, we all tend to treat this place as if it's going to be our home, if not forever, for a very long time. Martin Luther said, To God, this world is only preparation and scaffolding for yonder world. A wealthy builder must have much scaffolding for a house, but when the house is finished, he tears the scaffolding down. What a great picture. This world, what we accumulate, what we do, how we live, what we use our resources for, time, money, energy, affection, all of that is scaffolding. We don't build scaffolding in order to worship the scaffolding, in order to say, wow, this is what I want to be forever. Scaffolding is intended as an aid to build something else. This world, Luther says, is only for us to build into, heavenly, into the heavenly kingdom something that our affections long for to enjoy then and not put all of our satisfaction in now. We, we believe in deferred satisfaction as believers. He says, they have an alien identity. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in their truth, he says down in 19. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Why? Back up again, because, verse 16, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. How was Jesus not of the world? Those two categories. He was separate because he was focused not on the world but on God, and he was morally holy and says we need to pursue those two avenues as well. Let me ask you, are you aware of areas of your sanctification, separateness from the world, separateness unto God, are you aware of areas of your holiness that are, that are deficient and insufficient that God intends for you to change as a result of Jesus Christ praying that you're sanctified? Or do we live as those of this world? Is this world really it? Had a friend who discipled me when I was a, an early believer, and I remember him taking me out to eat, and he had that, that, that epic story I think I've told some of you about, where he says, uh, um, he says, let me see your checkbook. What are you talking about? Let me see your checkbook. He says, I want to see your checkbook. So I gave him my checks. He said, no, I want to see the register. Okay. He, I said, why? He says, because I'm going to tell you whether you're living for this world or the next by what you're spending your money on. Now, that's a pretty easy question to ask a seminary student because I didn't have any money to spend on anything. But it's a great test for all of us. Are we investing in the kingdom or are we investing in this world? Are we investing in the scaffolding 
or are we investing in the building? We are not of this world. We have an alien identity. Our citizenship is somewhere else. Number two of the sanctified marks of the gospel mission, now it gets in our kitchen a little more carefully and closely, a necessary holiness. Not only an alien identity, but one mark, another mark, is, is having a, a necessary holiness. Verse 17, sanctify them, set them aside, make them morally pure in the truth. Your word is truth. A holy mission requires individual holiness, both in godly character and in unilateral direction of our lives. Sanctify, set them aside. This is the intercession of the, the Holy One of God to the Holy Father for us to be set aside. How? How, we're all, how are we sanctified? It's right there in the text. Sanctify them by your word, in the truth. Your word is truth. Now back in 321, we find out that the truth is not merely something you believe, but it's something you do. You do the truth because you have the truth, because you know the truth. John 321. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Here's the great challenge of the evangelical church today, okay? Here it is. Is we think if we believe the truth, if we've appreciated the truth, if we've underlined things in our Bible, if we've gone to church, if we've liked godly things, then we're done. No, no, no. Sanctification means we've applied the truth. It makes a difference in our life. It changes our relationship. It changes our evangelism. It in, in, in instills in us an idea of worship that's entirely foreign to our experience in this world. We're sanctified in and by the truth. He gives us further insight in chapter 8, by the way. This is precious territory to me. This was the, the passage that I was, I was saved by, reading this verse. John 8, 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Boy, that doesn't that sound like they, they're saved. These Jews who had believed in him. Then he gives them a conditional uh, clause. If, John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Look at the connection between truth, living in the truth, abiding in the truth, and genuine, authentic Christianity. And he was saying this to Jews who had believed in him. And why wouldn't you? Well, if you were there, you would have believed something about Jesus. I mean... Who would not want to elect Jesus king of Israel? Free food and free medical, right? I mean, who would not want him to be the president? But he says, no, no, the word is the truth that makes you free. Free from the entanglements of the world. It's very interesting that to the same group of people that he was speaking, those Jews who have believed in him, down in verse 44, he says, you are of your father the devil. They were, here's a strange phrase for you, unsaved believers. They believed certain truths about Jesus, but had never committed themselves to that truth. There are lots of people like that today. Oh, we like Christmas. Oh, we like Easter. Sure, that happened probably in some measure, in some way. But that's not the main concern. The main concern that I have are people who may be sitting in our own chairs, in our own church, who have an appreciation for the truth, but the truth hasn't sanctified your heart. It doesn't make a difference in your moral character, in your separation from the world. Jesus will say to people who have appreciated the truth 
and not applied the truth, you know what he'll say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you. This is after in Matthew 7. They say, didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? In your name? In your name? In your name? He says, I I never knew you. Oh, you did Christian things in Christian names in the name of your church because they looked Christian, but we never had a relationship. Your sanctification was superficial and not internal. Sanctification is a significant part of the qualification and identification of Jesus' representatives and disciples. If we live like the world, what do we have to offer the world? Holiness is accomplished through exposure, very simply, to God through his word. That's what he says right here. In the word, sanctified them in the truth, your word is truth. Can we just have a pull the car over moment here for a second? Do you read your Bible? Do you re- will you read your Bible? Do you have regular quiet times? Do you have a time when you open God's Word? And I know what some of you are saying, well, I don't know. I had this guy who once told me, well, if you don't feel like it, then your, your, your heart is not in the right place. So, so don't be a hypocrite. Don't read the Bible when you don't feel like it. Are you kidding me? All the powers of hell itself, all the powers of your flesh, at least in my world, come together to discourage me from reading the Bible. I mean, do you wake up just flitting around the room saying, can't wait to read, don't want to think about the day, I just want to bury my face in God's word. If you have days like that, praise God, it's a foretaste of glory divine. But I know that when I wake up, I feel like Satan is sitting on my chest with his finger in my face saying, sleep in, do less, sanctify less, be distracted. And then even when I come to the Word, I feel like all the powers are against me. Have you ever read two or three chapters and come to the end and thought, I don't have a clue what I just read. But my eyes were covering sections. No, no. Jesus is saying here, if you want to be sanctified... God's word changes you. And I've said over and over, and you'll hear it more and more, I would rather any of us read one verse with deliberate attention and pray about what's in that verse and apply that verse and move on with our day than 17 chapters with no application and no understanding. Just be drawn to God. You will not, you cannot. It's impossible to be holy, to be separate, to be sanctified. Unless you read this book. This isn't a superstitious book. This is, a, this is a strange document. It's alive. It does things. It says things to you. It changes you. And there's no way that a, saint, a person who wants to be sanctified can put their mind in this book without it having overwhelming, incredible impact on your life. Please, I want to beg you, please read your Bibles. And if you feel like, well, I don't want to, then all the more you need to... If you wait till you feel like you're ready to have a quiet time, will you tell me what you did to feel that way? Because I want to drink that Kool-Aid. I guess it's that coffee, right, Bob? It's not always that. Sometimes we come to the Word and we're so excited. That's wonderful. Just know that it's a battle to be sanctified in and by the truth. Satan doesn't give you a standing ovation. He's having this quiet time. Demons come and look. Wow, that's great. Leave him alone. He doesn't do that. Everything is against us. Holiness is accomplished through exposure to the Word of God. And can I say this? It's 
ongoing exposure. I remember talking to a college kid who said, I said, you need to be in the Word. Gave him that whole little spiel. We met a week later. He says, I tried it and it didn't work. So what do you mean? He says, I read John 1, 2, and 3, and nothing changed. Wow. My answer was, it took you 24 years to get as messed up as you are now. It might take God more than one week to undo some of that. Come on, you think you're going to be totally, it's like a guy going in and wanting to bench press 400 pounds and not being able to lift the bar and saying, I give up, I'll never be able to do it. No, God's word has a progressive and even a cumulative effect on us. Sometimes it's even belated. What do you mean by that? Have you ever read something and didn't have much to do with you in a week, a month, a year, a decade later, you went, bingo, I remember, I remember, I remember. But it's filling the tool shed of your mind full of the truth of God to sanctify your heart and to make you a better decision maker in the moment and over time. Sanctification is to be a part of the life of a believer, but God will not sanctify, God will not aid, God will not instruct you unless you read the Word. You say, is this the, is this the read your Bible more sermon, Rick? Yeah, it is. It is. You got it. You caught me. I'm red-handed. You, this is the read your Bible more sermon. Aren't they all? How important is sanctification? Please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. This, is, this cannot be overstated. How important is this whole uh, process of separation, of becoming morally pure, of being holy? Well, the writer of the Hebrews could not have been more direct and have with more gravitas than what he said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, watch this, without which... No one will see the Lord. Are you ready for this? Sanctification is a must in a believer's life. Now, it's a progression. You're not as holy as you ever will be. And you're moving in progress. You're you're not going to become perfect. This is progress, not perfection. But this is where the whole controversy on lordship really gets disturbing to me, where people say, well, Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord, meaning you don't have to obey Him. What, what do you do with this? Pursue holiness, pursue sanctification, and if you don't have it, you won't see the Lord. What, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you have to reach a certain level of holiness to be, a, be saved, be a Christian. It does mean you have to be on the progress. You want to be on the progress. You learn to hate your sin more. And you know you don't hate it as much as you should. You, you learn to pursue righteousness more, and you know you don't pursue it as much as you want. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, quoting Leviticus 16, Be holy, says the Lord, for I am holy. I believe Jesus is still uttering this prayer for you and me. Sanctify them. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word, that's the truth. That's where you find that which must change your soul. And that third sanctified mark of the gospel mission is in verse 18 and 19. An alien identity, a necessary holiness, because we have, number three, an earnest example. An earnest example. This is incredible. Verse 18, as you sent me, 
into the world. Remember, he's not of the world like we aren't, but he was sent into the world. I also have sent them into the world. Here's the parallel. Just as God sent God the Son, the Father sent the Son into the world, he sends us. What does that look like? Do you see the parallel? Unappreciated, not always understood, persecuted, put down, forsaken, crucified. Same pattern. Now, does that mean we need to walk around the world, kick me, I'm a Christian, paint it on our back? That's not what it means. But I promise you this. If you live a sanctified life, if you live a holy life, if you do what's right at work and people around you are pushing you to do what's wrong to cover up their own sin, if you live a morally exemplary life like the Savior, you will be persecuted. The world wants so desperately for us to be like them so that they'll feel justified, especially because we say we know God. It's a parallel. As you sent me into this world, representing and being persecuted, so I have sent them into the world. And you think, ah, that's not, that's not encouraging until you go to verse 19. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. Whoa, screeching halt. There have been so many commentators who have gotten in trouble here does Jesus need to become holy? Was Jesus unholy? No, no, that's not what he's saying. Remember, there's two categories, two dimensions of sanctification. Moral purity and separation. Jesus was morally pure. He just had to exercise the nature of, of, his, of his will to show that. He didn't have to become morally pure, but he did constantly sanctify himself by separating himself from the world unto the Father. And he did that for them, and he did that for us. So that they themselves also may be sanctified. Here we come again, in truth. Jesus' mission in his earthly mission is our earthly pattern. Jesus' mission is our pattern in his earthly mission. It's our example. It's an earnest example. In chapter 10, verse 36, we find out that the Father actually sanctified and sent out Jesus his son, speaking to his accusers, he said in John 10, 36, Do you say of him whom uh, the Father sanctified and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. God said, I sanctified my son. I sent him into the world. And that's what he does with us. This is serious stuff, folks. This is not social club Christianity. This is sending us into a world in which we don't belong, which we don't fit. People cock their heads and look at us. People don't understand our standards, our morals. They don't understand why our kids don't act like their kids and watch what their kids watch and go where their kids go and do what their kids do. We live differently. This isn't our home. We're living in a place that's constantly trying to pull us away from godly standards. You think the world is a friendly place for believers? Note there's a chain in the, in the commission. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends His representatives into the world. The hostility of the mission field called the world is not unknown to our Lord. He faced it, He embraced it, He was faithful in it. He intentionally sends us out there. Our direction is not aimless, but it's dangerous. Verse 19 is remarkable. Here the Lord spends speaks to the Father about his being set aside for the purpose of the cross. The atonement, then, the crucifixion, 
for our sins is the means of our sanctification. He was set aside. He went to the cross for us so that we might be sanctified and we might be be those who live separate and holy and pure lives. Now, here's the instant you talk about this, all of us measure our sins measure ourselves against Christ's request here, and we instantly say, unclean, foul, insufficient, not enough. I'm not sanctified enough. That's good. It's good to make that comparison. Christianity is fundamentally a, a, a mindset of comparing. We compare ourselves to God, and we need the gospel. We compare ourselves to what we were, and we want to be further along. We compare ourselves to what we will be, and we're pulled along. It's all about comparing not for the purpose of acceptance in God, but for the purpose of being more holy and being more like Christ. The agent of our sanctification is in the last part of this verse. It's the truth. It's the truth. We should never, can I say, you should never expect to get any traction in your Christian walk unless you have a deliberate plan of reading and applying God's word. We have to go back to the fourth grade Sunday school. Take your Bible and go home and read it. And don't fall into the the Christian trap. Well, i got to wait until January 1 because that's when all the plans start. Really? Well, i got to wait until Monday because everything starts on Monday. Really? Sometimes I think that the enemy uses those good plans against us as deterrence. Please, just a verse... A prayer and some focus is better than nothing. Start somewhere. I want to beg you. Can I please beg you? Will will you read your Bible consistently? A little is better than nothing. And don't wait. Don't wait until you have six hours. Five minutes is better than nothing. And what I know is if you start with five minutes, it is so compelling you're going to want more. It's like we're reading through the book of Acts. What's next? You can find out. So how sanctified are you? Morally pure. Be holy for I am holy. Separate. We are aliens in this world and on this planet, living with an entirely different moral code, living with different standards than other people. How different are you than the world? We're not trying to be different because we want to be weird. We want to be different because it pleases God and that will provoke questions about our lives. You you will likely get, when you live in a sanctified way, all sorts of opportunities for evangelism that you never anticipated. And it's usually, why don't you do that? Don't answer, because I'm a Christian. That's not a good answer. Why don't you do that? Because I'm a Christian. Then they think it's a moral club. Why don't you do that? You know what? Because I want to please the one who saved me. And you're right into the gospel. Living separated, sanctified lives provokes a world agitated or a world attraction thought. They'll be agitated by us or they'll be attracted to what makes us live the way we do. But Jesus prays that we will live separated lives so that that'll be, that'll be different. Do, you, do the people at work really know that you're that different? You know what we get with high schoolers, those of you who are senior hires and collegians and junior hires, a lot of times you get, why don't you cuss? Great question. Why don't you cuss? 
Don't answer because I go to the church. That, when someone says, why don't you cuss? That's the Lord announcing from heaven. They want to hear the gospel. <laughs> Tell them why you don't cuss. Because you know what? God wants me to be pure and holy, and he did so much for me in living and dying. We, we, we sung it, Aaron. Thank you. We, he lived for us. He died. He resurrected. That gives me the power and the, the desire to want to please him because he took the cross for me instead of me. You are probably provoked or provoking opportunities for gospel engagement way more than you know because you're pursuing sanctification. Here's the deal. Salvation includes three careful, carefully defined aspects. Justification, be made just before God. That's the cross. Glorification, which means being made perfect and right and holy and going to be with, he- with Him in heaven forever. And sanctification, which is the rest of our lives of trying to be more like Him. And can I just tell you, sanctification is hard. It hurts. There are things you want to do, feel, say, respond to, react, participate in, where you just feel like every single cell in your mind and body is going to explode until you please Him. There's no substitute for knowing that the Savior is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Isn't that what you want to hear? Sanctification is what Jesus prayed for for our lives. Our signature to the world is that we're holy. And if anyone says, or you're trying to be holier than now, say, well, yeah. If you're pursuing the... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Why don't you be pursue holiness like me? Last thought. Sometimes pursuing sanctification provokes the ire and frustration of others who claim to know Christ who are not pursuing sanctification themselves. You've got to be ready and be careful about that. I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I remember seeing children, student, junior highers and high schoolers, beginning to live at a standard before God that was more intense than their parents, and that causing a problem. When the kid begins asking mom or dad, why are you looking at that? Why are you watching that? Why are we doing that? Be ready to be rebuked if your junior or senior hire comes home and asks you a question that moves you to sanctification because we are aliens on this planet. Let's live like it. Father, give us the grace that we need to live different than we are. We would never do it on our own. Lord, please, we need your assistance. We need your We need your motivation to put our faces in your book to even learn that which sanctifies us. Don't let us be discouraged where we lack, but be encouraged with where we can improve and be corrected. And Father, I I just want to beg that if there are those who are in that category of Matthew 7 who would get all the way to the judgment without having embraced your death for their sin, your resurrection to offer them life. 
Don't convict their hearts. Please bring them to a place of seeing that maintaining pride in something that's not true is not worth their eternal soul. Bring them to the prayer room, an opportunity to talk about what really matters. And as a result of today's text, Lord, bring us to a new motivation to study, to read, to apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>